Okay, church, why don't we uh, stand as a family and read 1 9. Revelation 1 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever more, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which, you, which are, and the things which you will, t- will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which are, you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Please be seated. While we get settled, you need to actually turn to Daniel 7 as well, please. I don't want you to be feeling frustrated if during the sermon you can't find that quickly. But Daniel 7, it's on page 1200. Okay, so you've got Revelation 1 and Daniel 7. Okay, so today, in today's message, we're going to complete the rest of chapter 1. So before we do that, let me remind you of what we spoke about last week, so we regain the context, and we can make our transition into today's sermon as smooth as possible. But you'll remember last week that we spoke about the importance of understanding Revelation as apocalyptic literature, and what that meant in terms of interpreting it correctly. We also spoke about how the message was transmitted to the seven churches and who it was originally intended for, as well as how Revelation was to be a blessing to those who not only heard it, but walked in obedience to it. But most importantly, John introduces us in the first verses to Jesus, to Jesus. And I'll just give you the last PowerPoint from Sermon 1 so you remember what we talked about. He said, this Jesus that we serve, it was the faithful witness. And the word witness had to do with martyrdom. So Jesus was a faithful witness in his speech all the way to martyrdom. An important reminder for those churches back then who were also suffering for the sake of Christ. He was also the firstborn of the dead, which is a reference to his resurrection. 
He was a ruler of the kings of the earth as opposed to the emperors and kings in Rome in those days. And he was the one who loves us. And his love is defined by what he did for us at Calvary, what we just celebrated in communion, the fact that he gave us the provision of the forgiveness of sin. And he gave us a new purpose. And forgiveness gave us a new purpose, a new reality for, for life as a human being, that we were to act as priests. And priests, again, interceded on behalf of people in relation to God. Finally, he reminds us, though, that he was the judge. He will come back one day to judge the living and the dead. And so we are to respond to him accordingly. Well, today's message is going to once again introduce us to Jesus. Now, this is going to be different, though, in that he's going to introduce us to a new and an important characteristic trait that we haven't really seen yet in the book. It's been highlighted and accented, but now we're really going to understand a part of his character that John really wants to highlight. And this is important because this is the first vision of many in Revelation he's going to receive. Right now, we haven't received any visions. This is the first vision he gets, and he's introduced to Jesus Christ. That should tell you something about the letter just right off the bat. That's why in verse chapter 1-1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're not to miss who the central figure in this letter is. But before we talk about uh, this vision and look at what John both heard and saw, let's look at his situation personally that he was in. In verse 9, it reads this. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John describes the situation here. He says, I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation, and I was exiled because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. So these two phrases tell us something very important about John. Not only was he clearly a man who had influence amongst the seven churches he was writing to, he was clearly a man of influence in relationship to the Roman authorities. He was well known to the church. He was well known to the state of the Roman Empire. So that he was exiled because of his loyalty to Jesus over them. So he must have had a very public ministry. He must have been a man who was known not to shy in backing down and proclaiming the truth about Christ, no matter what the cost. Now this is significant again when you consider the social and religious culture he was in, where one's allegiance and worship uh, to the Roman Empire and to the, the kings and authority and so on was a matter of basically life and death at times, or at least severe penalty. And so to deny loyalty to the state was to, was to come at huge personal cost. But it shows you how much Jesus Christ had actually transformed his own life when he received forgiveness. He would have been at one point a man not knowing, not knowing God, but he clearly had come to know Jesus as a savior as well. And Christ clearly had transformed his life by the way he's willing to endure for his sake. He was willing to suffer whatever penalty the Roman Empire had for him, whatever the cost. And he was one who embraced the new status in verse 6 that we talked about last week. He actually had become the kingdom, a kingdom of a priest. He was a priest the way Christ intended. He was interceding between the Romans and God and trying to be the go-between to say, you're missing 
the, who the loyalty is deserved to be towards. You're missing who really is the deity of the land. It's not the emperor, it's not Zeus, it's the ruler of the kings of the earth who loves us and releases us from our sins. But I began to think, you know, about this and thought my own, about my own life, my own walk with the Lord. Would I be in a place personally where I would trust him enough to endure what John was enduring? It's a good question, I think, for all of us. Would we, would we be able to go and be willing to go all the way with Christ to the point that we'd be willing to endure what John was going through in these seven churches? Now, truthfully, I don't think we even probably know that until we're faced with a situation. I learned that from Peter. Jesus, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, well, Peter, got another thing coming, buddy. Right? So I don't think we can know until we're faced with it. But I found a verse that spoke to me about a year ago that just sort of hit me between the eyes. The way my brain works, I'm visual, so I like to have closed lines of what I call big picture theology, and I hang things off of it. When my theology is wrong, I take the clothesline down and put a new one up and start hanging things off of it. So here's a, here's a clothesline that I hang my life off of that Christ showed me in my own readings a few, few uh, months ago. This is Paul speaking. He's been told that Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem, he's going to be suffer some pretty strong, some horrible things. And listen to what he says. I now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task of the Lord Jesus has given me, a task of testifying to the good news of the grace of God. <laughs> you see Paul's secret? Not even a secret, just the transforming work that Christ has done in his life, how much God means to him. He says, you can tell me all the hardships I'm going to face. My worth means nothing to me. This is the same Paul who said, to live is Christ, to die is gain, in Philippians. To live now is Christ. My whole being now was about centered around Jesus. But to die is gain, because I get to be with Jesus. Do you see how Paul and John are so diametrically opposed to the world we live in right now? What is the one thing over the last two years people are just hell-bent to preserve? Their life. And so they're making compromises and doing choices that God won't be proud of. And John, and John says here, and Paul says here, I consider my, worth, my life worth nothing. It's worth nothing. I think our world says to live, to live is to prolong life and to die is loss. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, I think this verse like struck me between the eyes and I, and I constantly ask myself, do I really consider my, my life worth nothing? and loyalty to Christ. Now, how long John had been on exile on the island, we don't know. Whether it had been days, months, or years before he received the vision. But what we do know 
from verse 10 is the day it happened. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. What's unique about this reference to the Lord's Day, when this is the day he received it, I thought that was a common phrase in the New Testament. I didn't realize that the Lord's Day is only mentioned once in the entire New Testament, and it's here in Revelation. There is no other place in the Bible where the Lord's Day is referred to. So we're left to guess what that is. But we are not, we're also going to probably make some pretty intelligent guesses as well, because the Lord's Day is most likely a reference to Sunday a Sunday, as opposed to the Sabbath day, which started on Friday night and ended on Saturday evening. It's the Lord's day because that was the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week. And so Christianity is founded and is centered upon the resurrection. And so the Lord's day is most likely, the, the Sunday is most likely when, when he actually received this. But what's important for us um, here is not so much as to figure out uh, why the vision was given on that day, but as to what John heard and later saw. So he says here that on the Lord's day, he heard behind him a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. The trumpet. So remember one of the keys to interpreting Revelation? You have to go back to the Old Testament. You do that, you won't get in trouble near as much. So what do trumpets represent and symbolize in Old Testament uh, scriptures? It's an announcement. It's an announcement, it's a wake-up call that something was going to commence, um, usually a, quite a big, big event. And so I know Sammy's just desperate to do this for us, so come on, Sammy, give it to us. Wake us up. <laughs> oh, do it again. I know you, I heard you last night. <laughs> awesome. Cool. I'm half awake, yeah. <laughs> Louder. He's giving it all he can, kids. I mean, trust me, I can, I can feel the air from here. <laughs> all right, so where do we see trumpets making an announcement to make, for a big event? We see that in uh, Joshua, at the city of Jericho. They walk around the city six times on the seventh. They blow trumpets, and the city falls down. Exodus 19, they're about to give the commandments God's about to give the commandments to the nation of Israel and Moses for the first time, and the trumpets are blaring. God sends a sound of a trumpet on the mountain before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And, and this makes sense even in our culture too, right? We have, we have trumpets in our day to announce big events. Horse races, right? The Kentucky Derby, you know, everyone knows the sound that they announce before the horse race. And Remembrance Day coming up. Every Remembrance Day, there's a particular tune that uh, a cadet or a soldier plays that knows uh, what we're doing with that song and it's to commemorate those who died in war. So the trumpet wakes up John to say, there's an announcement to make. And the announcement is to pass on a message to them, uh, to the seven churches. But what, turned, what John turned around to see was nothing like a trumpet. What he turned around to see was something completely different. You can pick this up with me in verses 12 through 17. 
He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished like bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining in the was like the sun shining in its strength. What he heard was a sound like a voice, like the trumpet, but what he turned around and saw was something very different. The golden seven, the golden, actually, you know what? Let me show you this because I think this is a really important back to our, what we always do. I wanna show you how much of this section is actually rooted in the Old Testament. How much of this is rooted in the Old Testament? Everything in black is the original John's words. Everything in color is a direct quote from the Old Testament. You can see it's just, he's just loading this full of Old Testament imagery. And to break it down for you, this is all the things he's saying. In Zechariah 4.2, we see the golden lampstands. In Daniel 7.13, the Son of Man. In Daniel 7.9, his head was hair like wool. In Daniel 10, 5, 6, you see the rest of the description of him. And in Ezekiel 124 describes his voice being like many waters. In Isaiah 49, 2, his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword. And all of these references, they're all refer to God himself, a description of God himself or the Messiah to come. Okay, so in this entire section, it's either God himself or the Messiah to come. These descriptions fit them. Another important thing about this is that Jesus actually uses some of these attributes to introduce himself to the seven churches. So we've gone through this whole clothing list. He uses some of these attributes to introduce them to the churches. Just look at one with me as an example in chapter 2, verse 12. In 2.12, he's speaking to the church in, uh, in the Pergamum, and he says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. And in verse uh, 16, he says, the one I saw has a sharp two-edged sword. So we need to later on in discussing the seven churches, we're going to have to figure out, what, figure out what these things mean before we apply them, because he's going to use an attribute of himself to talk to the churches about the situation they're facing. And he chooses each thing very specific to the church he's dealing with. But the lampstands, of course, need no interpretation. In verse 20, he says, these lampstands are the seven churches. And it, again, in verse 16, the stars that he's holding no need, no need, need no interpretation. He says, those are the angels of the seven churches. But where things get significant for us is when he describes the figure in the middle of the lampstands, lampstands this man named the Son of Man, this person, the Son of Man. Now, what John is doing is borrowing from the title given to him in Daniel 7. So turn with me to Daniel 7. Daniel 7. I'm going to read from verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like the white snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. 
His thrones was a blaze of flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Look at verse 13 now. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He says, there's one like a son of man coming from the clouds who goes to the Ancient of Days. We know from the New Testament who this is. Jesus himself referred to himself as the Son of Man. Remember this in Luke 5. He's forgiving the paralytic. He says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and take up your mat and go home. In Luke 9.22, in talking to the disciples, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. So Jesus referred to himself as the fulfillment of Daniel 7. He was using that title intentionally to make the Jews go back to Daniel 7 and go, I'm that guy. <laughs> they missed it, though. But the, I'm that guy. Better yet, all of you in the Acts Bible study, men and women, you've just come through Stephen's life. Remember what he said when he died? Look, I see heaven and the Son of Man standing at the right, or sorry, I see set heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That comment is when they rushed to kill him with stones. Because the leaders knew exactly what he was referring to by that point. So Stephen recognizes the Son of Man post-resurrection. Jesus recognizes the Son of Man. But here's where it gets really important in Daniel 7. There's two characters in play. The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. They're two different figures. They're two separate entities. Look at what is ascribed to the Ancient of Days. He's got a throne. He's clothed in white with hair like white wool in verse 9. Look at what the Son of Man has given. He comes to the Ancient of Days, and he's given an everlasting kingdom, and he receives praise. Go to Revelation now. Who has a description in verse 14 of hair like wool? The Son of Man or the Ancient of Days? The Son of Man. The Ancient of Days isn't described there. The Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days is the one who has hair like wool. Do you see what John is telling us? He's saying seven churches, Genesis house, Jesus Christ is not just the faithful witness. He's not just the King of Kings. He's God himself. He's God himself. The glory and splendor that God has given in Daniel is the same glory and splendor Jesus has given in Revelation. It's God who has a message for the seven churches. It's, it's God in the person of Jesus Christ. But not only did he want them to know that it was God speaking to them, he wanted them to know where God was located in relationship to him. Look at verse 12 and 13. 
He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Think of the Jewish candelabra with the seven, like, uh, like, like ch- channels or whatever you call them, or I guess, I don't know what you call them. Help me out. What are branches, that's it. Uh, branches. Where's the son of man? Is he off to the side and the branches are over there? He's standing in the middle of the branches, standing right in the midst of the church. You see what John's saying again? Not only is Jesus deity, he's not a distant observer either. He's not far removed from his people. He's right in their midst. And I love what Brutz Metzger said in his commentary. He said, John wants to let us know that Christ is not an absentee landlord. On the contrary, he's right in the middle of his churches, supporting them during trials and persecutions and provoking them in the midst of their temptations to compromise in their witness and practice. Because that's what's happening in Revelation. There's a temptation to compromise because the Roman Empire is a brutal force that demands loyalty. And Jesus is right in the midst of them, working with them to not compromise and to actually even encourage them in the things that they're doing well. And we're going to get into this in the next seven weeks as we look at the seven churches. But as I think to apply this to our church, I mean, this is incredible. That means that Jesus Christ cares about the spiritual condition of this church here right now. He wants us to see, he wants us to see him as being right in the middle of us. Not often like some distant heavens. He wants to know that he's with us here now. And he cares about us. He cares how we handle the Word of God. He cares how we love one another. He cares when there's sin in the church that's undealt with. He cares about how we handle our money. He cares about how we treat one another as brother and sister. He cares about how we treat each other as husband and wife, or boyfriend and girlfriend. How we handle ourselves in in immorality, and our sexual bodies. He cares about all these things. He's right in the midst of his church. But it wasn't only John that confirmed his divinity. It was Jesus himself. Jesus confirmed it. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. We're not going to go there for now, but you could just write down Daniel chapter 10 besides 17 through 19 here, and this is exact duplicate play. This is exactly what happens in Daniel's day and Daniel chapter 10. You can look at that on your own time. But don't miss the importance of what Jesus is declaring about himself. I am the first and the last. Do you remember where we learned that from? Declaration of God himself in Isaiah 44.6. Isaiah 44.6, God declared that of himself. Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. Not only this, look in verse 8 of Revelation. Remember last week? I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God. Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. 
So first and last, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Then he says, I am the living one. Deuteronomy 32.40. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and I solemnly swear as surely as I live forever. Keep reading. I am the living one. And he says, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. He's referring back to Deuteronomy and Jesus saying, I am the living one. I am Lord God Almighty. And then he makes this incredible statement. And I was dead. (laughs) And I was dead. What's that a reference to? Crucifixion. The crucifixion. The eternal living one went to the cross for our sins to free us from the penalty of our sins. Back to verse 5. He loved us and released us from our sins. What a paradox, hey? How does the eternal one die? (laughs) But that's what John is saying. God took on human flesh to die for our sin and was raised to life forevermore. Now, why this is important is what the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplished. You see the authority he's given now because of what he did and who he is? Look at what he says again. I have now the keys of death and Hades in his hands. If you have the keys to something, what does that signify? I know what I learned it signified this summer when I lost mine to my trailer. (laughs) And I still never found them and still went camping though because I had to keep my door unlocked the rest of summer. It means that you have the authority to access something. And once you access it, you have the authority to possess what's inside and use it. So to have the keys means you have the the authority to access that and whatever's inside belongs to you. Jesus says, because of the death and resurrection and because I'm eternal and I am God, I have the death, the keys to to Hades and to death. And then remember, Hades is the place of the departed, departed souls. Now, he has the keys to the place of the departed because he overcame death. So because he rose victorious over death, he now rules over death and has the keys to them. I like what Gordon Fee says. Christ himself has been raised from the dead to live forever. In so doing, he has stripped death and hell of their power. Jesus alone and no other has the power and authority, therefore, to determine our eternal destiny. If you hold the keys to eternal life, you, are, you have authority over eternal life. Now think of the assurance that gives the New Testament Christians in those days. The ones who may suffer like John, and maybe even Antipas in chapter 2 who lost his life. If Jesus holds the keys to life and death, It's assurance that if you have to go, you know you're going to be with him and resurrected. So there's things to physically fear, potentially, but they're not to basically dictate the outcome of our choices. 
I want to finish uh, with John 5, 24. Listen to Jesus' own words as he's speaking to the, uh, the, the Jewish people. In John 5, 24, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. The question is, which location will you go when you receive your resurrected body? If Jesus Christ holds the keys to death in Hades, you either enter Hades or you enter glory with him. So what can we learn from today's message? Number one, like John, there may be times in following Jesus that decisions will have to be made that may come at huge personal cost. I, John, your fellow partaker in the tribulation because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ was exiled on Patmos. To be more clear, to help out Denise, because she corrected me, all he has to do is be, to be free <laughs> from the island of Patmos <laughs> is to deny Christ and go back to emperor worship and Zeus worship, and he's free man. There, are all, there will be times, and there has been times already in Genesis House that we've had to make decisions for Jesus that come at huge personal cost. Number two, as a church family, we are to remember that Jesus sees himself as being amongst us and someone who is intimately concerned about our spiritual condition, not a distance observer. Having turned around and saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man. I saw one in the middle of the lampstands like the Son of Man. This is really kind of a cool lesson for us to think that Jesus actually sees himself as being with us and, and, and cares about the spiritual condition of us. That's important when we think about things that we're struggling with and things that we're going through, but also how we conduct ourselves as a church. It matters how we conduct ourselves because he's amongst us. Number three, Revelation teaches us that Jesus Christ is indeed God. John declares that in the vision he saw, 
He takes the Ancient of Days characteristics and applies them to the Son of Man. Jesus then stands up and says, don't be afraid, John, to give him comfort. He says, I am the first and the last. A title given to God in verse 8 of Revelation. Jesus isn't confused about his identity. <laughs> he knows exactly who he is. How did this help me out? Well, I'll tell you, I can tell you one cool thing. Um, when I went to Regent College and took Revelation as a course, my teacher said to us, you can write about four subject matters that, you, that you've learned from Revelation that you did not know before. It can be anything you learn in the 22 chapters, write something you knew. My first, one of my four um, things that I learned was that I could use Revelation to defend the deity of Christ to people that, that deny his, the Trinity. I don't need to go anywhere else in the Bible anymore to talk to a Jehovah Witness. I don't need to go anywhere in the Bible to talk to a Mormon, to a Muslim. It's right here. I mean, read 1.8 and then read 1.17 and go to Daniel 7. That's a done deal. If they still deny it, it's just an issue of spiritual blindness that we can pray for, but the proof is right here. Finally, as the one who died for our sins and conquered death through his resurrection, Jesus Christ is the only one who determines our eternal destiny. Now, I do have to make a caveat here. Don't think this, and I know you don't, but it's worth saying out loud. I'm not talking about God playing whack-a-mole in heaven, appointed to heaven, appointed to hell, appointed to heaven, appointed to hell, I'm determining because I hold the keys who's going in and who's going out. The gospel of love that he offers is for the entire world. But he loves us enough not to overcome or to force us into choosing him. So he holds the keys. We, that's undeniable. And he is the one who conquered death and life and can grant us eternal life. But he loves us enough to leave us with the freedom of choice as to whether we want to receive that love and that forgiveness or not. So again, this is important because we have decisions to make. We have decisions to make in relationship to him. Do we want to make him the Lord and Savior of our life and respond to him the way John did in verse 17? When I saw him, he says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. In the presence of the glorified heavenly Christ, he was undone. That's what the Lord's looking for from us. A place where we're flat on our backs and are flat on our faces. We say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. Nothing to offer you except just to bank on your forgiveness and the eternal life that you're willing to grant me. But Jesus knows it's your choice. He will not force himself upon you. But he's a good, good father. Okay. Well, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that uh, all the symbolic language uh, hopefully has become clear, not because of anything I said, but just because your spirit has been alive and well in this service. And 
has been teaching people through your word. We uh, we're grateful for the testimony of John and the seven churches and uh, what they were willing to demonstrate to us in terms of loyalty, loyalty and commitment to you. And that uh, all of us look for superheroes and people to like model ourselves after. We have, we have them right in the midst to learn from. And so we're grateful for that example you give us. Thank you for the, the, the sacrifice at Calvary, how you defeated death, and that you grant eternal life to anyone who loves you and is willing to follow you. And so thank you for your unconditional grace and mercy you offer us. We look forward to the rest of the day and uh, in fellowship and in prayer and in laughter and games, whatever our families and friends uh, have us doing. And uh, we look forward to that as well. So thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Amen.